Tuned in to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's everything from a 20th to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of this Cineverse film discussion group that meets weekly in the Chicagoland area. For this installment, we head to China to explore one of the finest martial arts movies ever made and a milestone of Chinese cinema, its Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, directed by Ang Lee, which made its debut at the Cannes Film Festival 20 years ago this month. I reached out to the film's screenwriter and producer, James Seamus, who would have loved to join me but unfortunately was under the weather. But I found an equally brilliant guest, Kenneth Chan, director of film studies at the University of Northern Colorado, who has written extensively on this film, the martial arts genre, and Asian cinema, and has authored the book Remade in Hollywood, The Global Chinese Presence in Transnational Cinemas. Kenneth and I will attempt to unsheath the green destiny sword and examine why Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, what we can learn from the picture today, how it stood the test of time, and more. Crouching Tiger is a complex story and production, so allow me to provide some context before we hit the discussion button. According to Wikipedia, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is a 2000 wuxia film, a genre of Chinese fiction concerning the adventures of martial artists in ancient China, Directed by Ang Lee and written by Wang Huling, James Seamus, and Kuo Zhong Tsai, based on the Chinese novel by Wang Dalu. The film features an international cast of Chinese actors, including Chao Yun Fat, Michelle Yeoh, Zhong Ziyi, and Chong Chen. A multinational venture, the film was made on a $17 million budget and distributed by Sony Pictures Classics. With dialogue in Mandarin, subtitled for various markets, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon became a surprise international success, grossing $213.5 million worldwide, including $128 million in the United States, becoming the highest-grossing foreign-language film produced overseas in American history. The movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival on May 18, 2000, and was theatrically released in the United States later on December 8, 2000. An overwhelming critical and commercial success, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon won over 40 awards and was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and won for Best Foreign Language Film, Best Art Direction, Best Original Score, and Best Cinematography, receiving the most nominations ever for a non-English language film at the time, until 2018's Roma tied this record. The movie also won four BAFTAs and two Golden Globe Awards, one for Best Foreign Film. Along with its award success, Crouching Tiger continues to be hailed as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made. The movie has been praised for its story, direction, cinematography, and martial arts sequences. Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon currently commands a 97% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where it earns an average critical score of 8.61 out of 10. How's about now we take a moment to revisit the movie's original theatrical trailer? beauty and infinite mystery a legend was born the story of a warrior the woman he loved a daring outlaw princess destined to become a warrior.
Classics proudly presents Chao Yun-Fat, Michelle Yeoh, Zhang Ziyi in an extraordinary romantic adventure. of sense and sensibility. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Exciting stuff, no? So before I share my conversation with Kenneth Chan, I'm duty-bound to warn that spoilers are ahead. If you've not yet had the pleasure of viewing Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it's still not too late to hit pause, go watch the movie, and return. Everyone back? Booyah! All right, it's my pleasure to welcome Kenneth Chan, professor of English from the University of Northern Colorado to Cineversary. Kenneth, thanks so much for saying yes and appearing on our podcast. Thanks, Eric. I'm really happy to be here. As are we. So, Kenneth, can you please define and explain Wuxia films, including predecessors to Crouching Tiger, hallmarks of this genre, and maybe how Crouching Tiger fits within this genre? Eric, I'm really glad that you have used the word wuxia as a as a, as a label for a specific genre in 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 the martial arts sort of category. Uh, but to be to to broaden it out a little bit further, China, the Chinese martial arts genre is made up of various subgenres, and the wuxia film is a subgenre of this larger larger umbrella. Okay. So. Um, uh, the word wuxia really means, wu means literally martial or military skill, right? And xia means mm-hmm. knight, uh, a swordsman or swordswoman. Uh, right? uh, and of course, we, we, we usually call it wuxia pian, pian meaning film. And then the wuxia pian is usually associated with kung fu film that has mystical and sometimes even supernatural elements. I see. And, and that specific element becomes a part of its aesthetic and style. So, for, for example, you would see people flying uh, using something called qinggong, right? Q-I-N-G-G-O-N-G. Qinggong literally translates as light skill, hmm. a light, uh, you know, um, technique, right? Qinggong. Okay. Uh, and so when you see the opening, the opening fight scene, for example, and there are numerous scenes in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but in the opening fight scene, which is a beautiful scene, right, we have... Uh, Shu Lian, who is Michelle, Michelle Yeoh's character, chasing after Zhang Ziyi's character, right? Uh, Zhen Yu. And, and as they are fighting, they are f- literally floating from rooftop to rooftop. And, and that particular style of martial arts is called Qinggong. But to also to sort of expand this genre wider and to understand why Crouching Tiger, Hidden, Hidden Dragon is such uh, a landmark film within the genre, one needs to, to understand that the martial arts film carries with it a certain kind of cultural gravitas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a very popular genre. If you were to ask any ethnic Chinese person, they, um, the majority of them are familiar with the genre, have been brought up on the genre. And that's mainly because the, the, the martial arts film, or the wuxia pian in this case, right, we can trace its lineage back into, into Chinese culture and history. Right. So, of course, we know that martial arts is actual skill, right? There are various branches of martial arts within Chinese history. And all that has contributed to the making of uh, that specific genre. We think, too, of Chinese, classical Chinese literature. For example, you know, Journey to the West, C.U.T., or The Water Margin, Sri Huchuan. These classic Chinese literature provide the narrative... Uh, structure or the tropes and the themes for the contemporary martial arts film. Yeah, I'm sure you know this, right? Wang Tulu, who is the author of the Crane Iron Pentology, is a is a 20th century sort of sort of uh, novelist, and his work, right, the the, the this particular pentology, uh, is the basis for 
um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's actually based on the fourth book in that pentology, right? Absolutely, right. So it's the fourth book of that pentology, and he belongs to a group of Chinese novelists and Hong Kong novelists, you know, including people like Gu Long, mm-hmm. who is extremely famous. They are all influenced, their, their, their novels are influenced by classical Chinese literature, and hence they are borrowing from that classical literature, and these novels become the basis for a lot of films that are being produced. And we think back as far back to the Shanghai film, to the Shanghai film industry. With the emergence of cinema in the 20th century, cinema is a technology that creates a space for action spectacles. Sure. Cinema embraced the martial arts very easily in, in Shanghai films. And even as the Shanghai industry, film industry, migrated to Hong Kong, right before and after the, the, the Communist Revolution uh, in Hong Kong, you know, uh, all the way from the 50s right up to, to the present, we see uh, martial arts uh, cinema, the Wuxia Pian, dominating uh, much of the output. And therefore, it is within that context that we understand uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm-hmm. Right, right around the 1990s, we could see that the Wuxia Pian has begun to, to wane, right? So, so there is a, a slight decline in the number of Wuxia titles. But let me ask you, Kenneth, was Crouching Tiger really the first major Wuxia film to, you know, catch fire on these shores? Or was it primarily just a Chinese kind of phenomenon up to this point? Much of the, the, the latter half of the 20th century, the Wuxia Pian was predominantly a genre that was embraced by, you know, the, the ethnic Chinese communities. People living in Chinatown, for example, you know, they would be the ones who, are, who, who would consume, you know, the Wuxia Pian. So in other words, they were being imported here and shown here, but they weren't uh, widely seen by Westerners. Not as widely. I mean, there are certain aficionados or like cinephiles who are or more tuned into Asian cinema, right? They would then right. um, be the ones who would be consuming, say, you know, bootleg videos. <laughs> but what I'm trying to get at, Kenneth, is were there any major predecessors to Crouching Tiger that had kind of crossed over and gotten more attention? Yes. In the 1970s, there was a period when uh, Bruce Lee's films became extremely popular. Okay, so I have to plead ignorance. You're saying the Bruce Lee cycle, those are Wuxia films. Um, they, were, they were kind of a hybrid. Um, they were like I sort see. of wuda, wuda pian, right? And at that time, mm. there was a specific year with, with Bruce Lee's film right at the top. Uh, there were two other titles. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, the, the titles escape me right now. But there are two other titles that were, that were actually Shaw Brothers films. Uh, there were also martial arts films. And okay. this is in the, within the United States. Yes. There was a bleep, <laughs> a singular bleep, right, in <laughs> American consumption of cinema where the Wuxia Pian made its presence. Mm. Thank you for taking the time to help us kind of navigate that. I mean, it is a little bit confusing to somebody who doesn't know the history, and I'm sure a lot of people listening appreciate what you're telling them. Yeah. How does Crouching Tiger fit within this genre? Is it a hybrid? Is it an expansion on this genre or subgenre, if you will? It should be categorized under a Wuxia Pian, right? Because it has, you know, elements of Qing Kong, for example. Mm-hmm. But then it, it's references to, for example, uh, the Wu Tang, and also certain um, fighting sequences where they would dispense of, of their weaponry and begin to use hand-to-hand combat. Mm. Those are very signature Wu Da Pian elements. Genre subcategories are very slippery things. There is mm-hmm. never a pure genre. Right. So in other words, um, one film and one trend would influence the other. That is what makes Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon significant. During the, the late 90s, there was a wane in, in, in the trend. And as mm. we approached the end of the 1990s, if, if you recall, the Matrix became um, extremely popular, especially right. with Yuan Wuping uh, acting as the action choreographer and the using of what they call wire foo, which is really a technique that has been already been in, in existence basically throughout much of Chinese martial arts films, right? His, history. Right, wire and harness work where you're able to make your actors kind of fly around and defy the laws of physics. Absolutely. And so it, by, by the time we get to the, to, to the year 2000 with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, they are then able to digitally erase the wires. Yes. So, yes, so special effects has allowed for Ang Lee to transform the film that, uh, the genre that way. Great point. So Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon entered into the scene, which then opened somewhat the floodgates 
for a number of kung fu films to, to sort of flood the U.S. market. And ultimately, it also reminded the Asian film industries that there is still life in the genre. That was a great recap. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to walk us through that. But Kenneth, do you recall when and where you first saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Can, and can you tell us how or why this movie is important to you? I can't believe that it's, it's already 20 years. <laughs> I just completed uh, graduate school, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, standing in the lobby of a, of a cinema and seeing the original poster of the film. Uh, the poster was very artful, very, um, as, as I said earlier, minimalistic, and it really attracted mm. me to it. And I, I used the poster as a way of pointing out that um, Ang Lee finished his studies at, at, I think, Tisch School of Arts at NYU. And then, of course, he went ahead and made his uh, Father Knows Best trilogy, which is Pushing Hands, The Wedding Banquet, and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, before Columbia uh, signed him up to do a number of other films that are incredible, right? The, the adaptation of Jane Austen's uh, Sense and Sensibility, right. The Ice Storm, and the very underrated but, fan- but incredible film, you know, Ride with the Devil. Uh, and it was immediately after that mm. that, he, he, that he became known as this art film director who could make films for the mainstream, right? That's right. Yeah, and so Crouching yeah. Tiger, Hidden Dragon became his, his, the opportunity for him uh, to do this. And what, what excited me about it was the fact that what happens when you place a very populist, a very uh, mainstream genre, at least for Chinese, ethnic Chinese viewers, right? To place a genre like the martial arts genre in the hands of an art director, what happens? Mm-hmm. I think it was James Seamus who said that, you know, Crouchy Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the, the Chinese version of Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> and I suppose I was, after seeing the film, I was extremely excited about it, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I was ambivalent. Mm. And, and this is why. And on one hand, I have been brought up on the Wuxia Pian. And um, I can see that Ang Lee has been, been very careful to pay homage to the genre. Okay. And therefore, using a lot of the structures, the narrative structures, the thematic structures, the aesthetic and stylistic, mm. you know, sort of forms of the genre. But yet, at the same time, I argue that he has upended it and reconfigured it for a 21st century audience. Wow. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, um, I think that is why it is an important film. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for taking us back to that time. Yes, it is hard to believe it's been two decades now. Well, actually, it was released at the Cannes Film Festival, and it wasn't widespread mm-hmm. released in uh, the, the United States until late 2000. But still, we're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary now. Yes. And that's okay. I'm sure a lot of fans are going to be eager to kind of reminisce about this with us. But tell me why this picture is worth celebrating 20 years later, Kenneth. How has it stood the test of time and why does it still matter? I think there are multiple reasons. Firstly, the film embodies uh, the concept of what scholars have called, you know, transnational cinema or specifically transnational Chinese cinema. Mm -hmm. If you look at the credits, right, it's the who's who of the Chinese and Hollywood and Asian um, sort of cultural, popular cultural industry. Right? Sure. So we, we, we had uh, actors uh, from mainland China, Zhang Ziyi. Uh, we've got Hong Kong, uh, Chow Yun-Fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle Yeoh comes from Malaysia. Uh, we had Yo-Yo Ma play the theme. You know, right. we have Yuan Wuping, who is from Hong Kong. We had uh, fin- financing coming from all over the world. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was kind of the test case, right? For the way cinema, which used, I mean, one could argue that the cinema has always been transnational, but mm. it became particularly transnational as a lot of film, Asian filmmakers, particularly Hong Kong filmmakers, you know, have, have tried to migrate to Hollywood, right? And so therefore, Hong, the Hong Kong film industry, now under uh, the Chinese regime, is looking at all of this and saying, mm, there is money to be made, right? that we can actually produce films drawing from talent, drawing from the financial resources and even, you know, the studio resources, the technical resources from all over the world. Second thing, uh, I think it still matters is that with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon sort of blazing the trail for Asians being able to appear in Hollywood, 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we now are able to see films like Crazy Rich Asians, mm-hmm. Lulu Wang's The Farewell, and films like Always Be My Maybe, which is I think available on Netflix, right? Yeah. Uh, without again, without Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, Michelle Yeoh would not have the kind of career that she has today. Yeah. Um, and and appearing as Captain uh, Philippa Giorgio in Star Trek Discovery, so it has opened the paths for Asian faces to appear on American screens. Yeah, good point. And of course, I think Ang Lee has eventually become an auteur. So I'm using the word very specifically in that his body of work has been and will continue to be studied. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, of course, is a major part of it as it is, I think it won the, the, the Oscar for foreign, the best foreign language film. That's right. It was nominated for best picture as well as best director. Mm-hmm. Which only didn't win until I think Brokeback Mountain, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it was quite an amazing Oscar nomination, bragging rights period there, and Oscar Hall, four yes. wins at the Academy Awards. Yeah. You know, if you asked me, I would say that the ethereal, graceful, and masterful quality of the martial arts choreography and sure. fight sequences, especially to me, who's not as well versed in wuxia films or, you know, kung fu, karate, martial arts movies in general. So this was a real eye opener for me. And I think that instead of employing hard and aggressive fighting styles, Crouching Tiger really opened eyes because it uses cat like, soft, almost balletic movements. And it depicts superhuman powers that stretch the laws of physics. So, again, that would have really impressed a lot of people. Right. Also, while the action and the fighting are thrilling and important, to me anyway, it's not the main focus of the movie. The action serves to advance the story and enhance the characters rather than the other way around. Now, director Ang Lee said in an interview that, quote, the choreography expressed the character development, unquote. So for a martial arts movie, Kenneth, it's quite richly textured with a plot structure that features romance, revenge, tragedy, unrequited love. Sure. This isn't your standard kind of Bruce Lee movie, let's put it that way, right? Right. It's also a film with five particularly intriguing characters who each possess absorbing backstories and motivations. So those five characters are really commanding and uh, worthy of our attention. You you mentioned this already, but like the cinematography, uh, as well as the natural location shooting, the extreme widescreen vista, they result in a sweeping and an epic, colorful, awe-inspiring picture that serves as a feast for the eyes. This is a real visual tour de force, to me anyway. And you mentioned Yoyama, the score, that mournful cello. And those exciting drums, it's so beautiful and moving and well syncopated to the rhythm of the fighting and the movement and the editing. It's just a beautiful score that also won the Oscar. And so while it has Eastern philosophical sensibilities and character motivations that, granted, it may be difficult for Westerners to grasp. There's probably a lot of symbolism in this movie that went over my head and others. It's still an emotionally accessible film. One that audiences of any country can kind of grasp onto. And it features exhilarating cinematic moments that can be appreciated by someone of any language or cultural background. You mentioned James Shamus before. He had said in an interview, we wanted a film that would have accessibility to audiences around the world. So I think that they achieved that goal. And then when you consider that Americans, they love movie musicals. Now, this film has been compared to a movie musical that substitutes fight sequences and acrobatic action for song and dance numbers. In fact, Lee had said that martial arts films are musicals at heart, and Crouching Tiger was a musical for me, he said in an interview. I think that that is the case for anyone who is involved uh, in any way in in martial arts films. Mm. Take, for instance, Jackie Chan. He has always credited his fighting, the, the choreography and, and the, the technique of choreography. He has always compared that to musical numbers. He, he would talk about how the work of, uh, of Gene Kelly or even Fred Astaire, mm. that his martial arts sequences would be comparable to the dance sequences. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. I particularly like your point about how the film has a certain kind of visuality that appeals mm-hmm. to audiences no matter what their background. And I think that that is ultimately to the credit of Ang Lee, right? Sure. He has taken something that is quite uniquely, I, sh- I should say uniquely Chinese, right? The flow and app 
uh, that is being influenced by sort of Taoist thinking right, and philosophy. Taoist? Yeah, Taoist, right? Mm-hmm. That has redefined what would be action sequences or fight sequences in, say, in any Hollywood uh, blockbuster film. We in the U.S. are not used to seeing this. There's a certain softness in, in reaction to and in, in the counteracting of your opponent's force. Mm. That builds a beautiful sort of sequence. The fact that his film is so important right, in, in this history is that it has also influenced other filmmakers to do the same. So we think about Zhang Yimou's Hero. Great movie. I think came out in yeah, 2002 and then I, I, th- I think mm. it was only released in the US in 2004 um, through Miramax and his film House of Flying Daggers, right? Yes. All these films use precisely that, that fluidity and that artistry. Yeah. Well, you, that's a nice segue, uh, Kenneth, into my next question, which was, in what ways do you think Crouching Tiger set trends or was influential in popular culture or cinema? So you just name-dropped a few movies that came in its wake and maybe a, a bit of a movement that it created. Right. What else would you say about that? How else would you answer this question in terms of uh, the influence and inspiration of Crouching Tiger? It opened the way for a lot of other Kung Fu or martial arts films to appear. And, and I think it, it kind of trained uh, American audiences to accept a certain style of action sequences. Okay. But also I think that, you know, it, it began to redefine the diversity in Hollywood. Think, for example, uh, Kill Bill. Sure. Yeah, you couldn't have Kill Bill without this movie coming first. Absolutely. <laughs> and Tarantino has been so influenced by the movies of Shaw Brothers, a major studio run by there are actually three brothers, but then you know the the one who is who is invo- who is responsible for uh, the production of cinema in Hong Kong was Run Run Shaw. I see. So they basically built this entire studio city mm. right in Hong Kong and has been ma- had making films from the nineteen I would say nineteen fifties right up till about maybe the late 80s. Tarantino was very influenced by the Wuxia Pian. And his influence, together with his, of course, the cultural clout that he has, helped bring to the foreground the the genre. And so we have Mm. uh, him alluding to a lot of these sort of films, even within Kill Bill. For a brief period, he had um, a a DVD sort of uh, and distribution a company that he set up called Rolling Thunder Pictures. We have to remember that prior to this, especially in the 70s, the Wuxia Pian was considered a B-movie. Mm. And it's often paired with B-movies yes. as part of grindhouse releases, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so, so, you would, yeah, so you would go to a, uh, a, one of these theaters, a grindhouse, and watch some B-movie flick that is then uh, followed up by a Hong Kong martial arts film. He has brought the martial arts film, elevated it from a B-movie and taken B-movie, mm-hmm. you know, sort of culture into the mainstream. You, when you say he, do you mean Ang Lee? I, I mean Tarantino. See, for a lot of the ethnic Chinese, the Wuxia Pian is a movie material, right? It's the, it's, the, it's the kind of movie that you watch as a blockbuster. Right, like a superhero movie maybe in, uh, in China. A- absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, right? And so therefore, I think that Ang Lee's artistic sensibilities, mm-hmm. being able to reconfigure the genre for Hollywood, um, has brought it into the foreground in a way that was also later extended, right, through the other filmmakers like Zhang Yimou and Chen Kaige, and of course, you know, uh, Tarantino, who is always, who is a cinephile, right, who loves these movies, uh, helped to sort of propagate, to, to extend its popularity. Now, these are all great points. Any others in terms of marking the influence or inspiration of Crouching Tiger? I think that the kind of Kung Fu films that we are watching right now and the, the, the transnational Chinese productions, right? So we think about the Detective D films um, directed by Sui Park or the Journey to the West films uh, directed by Stephen Chow. A lot of the contemporary um, kung fu films, the martial arts films that we see produced by Chinese studios like China Film Production, for example. Okay. There is a trans-Pacific cross-pollination at work, right? So on one hand, it gets embraced by by Hollywood and by American audiences, mm-hmm. uh, which then attracts the attention of Asian film industries, okay. particularly the Chinese film industries. And the Chinese film industry has been wanting to build upon that, right? So they, they, so, so they have created studios, they have you know, financed major films. 
So it opened the way for these transnational films uh, to be made. No, that makes sense. The points that I found in my research and just kind of going back and thinking hard about Crouching Tiger and, and how it kind of shook the world. Yeah. To your point earlier, yeah, so this is not a B-movie. This is a, a film with a high production value. It's got a rich sheen to it, and that's thanks to a relatively large budget, an impressive cast, yes. an assemblage of talented filmmakers who you've already listed out. So that elevates it right there. You you mentioned some of the films in its wake, such as House of Flying Daggers and Hero. You also had things like Curse of the Golden Flower, yes. Seven Swords, Reign of Assassins, yes. Flying Swords of Dragon Gate, Brotherhood of Blades, Swordmaster, and even to an extent, the animated movie Kung Fu Panda, right. which probably wouldn't exist without Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, right? Right. So just to kind of summarize... Crouching Tiger went on to become the highest grossing foreign language film in history up to that time, which is really impressive. And that speaks to its immediate popularity, of course. Arguably, a foreign film had never received collectively so much media attention, public adoration, Oscar recognition, and critical acclaim before Crouching Tiger. All of those things together is what I'm saying. Right. So it was nominated for 10 Academy Award nominations, and that's a record that still holds today for a foreign film. And it won for Best Foreign Language Film, Best Original Music Score, Best Cinematography, and Best Production Design. That's uh, no small shakes. Those are really impressive creds. And at the time, Kenneth, this was only the third movie nominated for both Best Picture and Best Foreign Language Film. So again, it's elevating the whole genre or subgenre, if you will, Yes. and foreign language films in general. So it's lifting all boats. And that impact paved the way for other foreign films, as you detailed, to get imported and noticed in America. That's important, right? I would also say that Crouching Tiger's focus on strong female characters and the female-centric narrative with Jen at its center, this film was, was ahead of its time in that way. Now, today, many superhero films and action movies spotlight powerful and interesting female characters who defy gender conventions and expectations. Right. But without Crouching Tiger... You know, like you said, maybe Tarantino doesn't make his Kill Bill films and maybe superhero films with female leads, they don't get greenlit. You could make a case that this is the most feminist action movie ever created. I think that what's central is the fact that, you know, the film is a feminist film. But what, what is the nature of that feminism? Traditionally, it is important to think about the Wu Xiaopian as a, what I call a masculinist film. There's a certain machismo, right, to its culture. You, you are as characters within Tianghu, meaning to say in the world of the martial arts genre, diegetically, that world is called Tianghu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so within, within Tianghu, it is mostly the men. It's a very masculinist world. And my argument in an essay I wrote for Cinema Journal is to posit that the film is a feminist film because it is Ang Lee's way of appealing specifically to a 21st century audience by reenacting the nature of Jiang Hu as it confronts a woman who has immense strength, who has immense determination. I mean, think about the title, Wo Hu Changlong. In the Chinese title is, of course, translated literally as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But what exactly does the title connote? Mm -hmm. So you have meaning the tiger that is lying down. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, I think in an interview, said this, that do not underestimate that tiger. Right? Do not underestimate the dragon that you cannot see because you do not know what its power is. And I think that throughout the film, there is a certain sense that the characters, especially the male characters, underestimate the female protagonist particularly Jian Yu, the right, character played by Zhang Ziyi. Right. So at one point, Li Mubai tells Shu Lian, right, uh, which is uh, Michelle Yeoh's character, that oh, he mm. wants to adopt Jian Yu as his disciple in order to prevent her from becoming a, I, I quote here, a poison dragon. That's right. He has a very paternalistic sort of attitude towards Jian Yu, and this is in order to prevent her from turning um, so-called evil. But what's ironic about that is that, number one, Li Mubai's master was being killed by Jen Yu's master. Jade Fox. But Jade Fox tells Li Mubai at one point in a, in a fight scene at night that Li Mubai's master was willing to sleep with her, but was not willing to teach mm-hmm. her. 
Correct? And so therefore, um, the, already the feminist themes are being propagated where women have their place within Jianghu, yes. but they cannot eclipse the men when it comes to their, their martial arts skill. So Li Mukbai makes precisely the same mistake, I would argue, as his master. Interesting. I think one of my favorite moments was when just as Zhen Yu and Shu Lian have finished fighting, and, and, and there's a very hilarious scene where uh, uh, Shu Lian was trying to use all the different right. weapons. <laughs> they keep breaking. Right? Yes, it can never quite defeat the, the Green Destiny nope. sword uh, <laughs> that's wielded by Zhen Yu. It's like a lightsaber, right? A- absolutely. So Li Mubai arrives and tries to defend Shu Lian and, and chases after Zhen Yu. Zhen Yu goes up into the, into the bamboo right. treetops, the canopy tops. Amazing. And then they have this fight scene. By the way, this fight scene is really an allusion to movies by King Hu, uh, a Taiwanese uh, filmmaker who has done films like Come Drink With Me, Dragon Gate Inns, as well as, you know, A Touch of Zen. Not only does King Hu use the bamboo sort of forest as a mise-en-scene, right? As a, as, a, as a scene with which to enact this particular sort of um, fight sequence. You have also Jade Fox, who is played by Chen Pei Pei. That's right. Chen Pei Pei appears in a number of King Hu's films. So Ang Li is being very strategic. But allow me to return to that sequence in on top of the bamboo trees, right? As they are fighting, you know, Zhang Ziyi's face gets beautiful close-ups, right? Yes. There is a certain erotic quality to the pas de deux that is occurring between Li Mubai and Zhen Yu. Earlier, when Li Mubai first meets Zhang Ziyi's character, there was a significant change in the way he looked at her. And I think Shu Lian notices it, right? And Shu Lian at one point tells him, you know, I knew you would be intrigued by this woman, right? So clearly, Li Mubai loves Shu Lian, but has, at least in my opinion, an unspoken attraction to Zhen Yu. Ah, I never thought of it that way, but go ahead. Yeah, and so think about the moment close to the end of the film where Jade Fox arrives mm-hmm. and rescues Zhen Yu and then escapes to the cave, right? And so she basically poisons or at least drugs Zhen Yu. And at that moment, as Jade Fox leaves, Li Mubai appears and Zhen Yu comes out uh, and, and is being... And there was, there was a beautiful mm. shot where, I don't know if it's a waterfall, it's rain falling. She removes her outer sort of covering yes. right, to expose herself her clothes being wet, so semi-translucent. And then she points the sword, the Green Destiny sword, at him and says this, is it me you want or is it the Green Destiny sword? So there is a double entendre at work here. Hmm. The sword becomes this sort of Freudian moment. And I say this not out of speculation. Even Ang Lee admitted that he could have used Freud to unpack his film. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the sword becomes this sort of phallic symbol. And the erotic connection between him and Zhen Yu parallels that of Jade Fox and Li Mubai's master. Li Mubai's master was poisoned. Are you also suggesting that Li Mubai meets his end because he underestimates her? Yes. He underestimates her and he underestimates the women. He is being poisoned by Jade Fox just as his master is being poisoned by Jade Fox. And it comes out of a certain measure of hubris. Mm-hmm. I want to take you under my wings to teach you the real skill. And I think that he has forgotten that Crouching Tigers and Hidden Dragons should not be underestimated. This is fascinating. But you did segue there again quite nicely into what messages or themes are explored in Crouching Tiger and what's the moral to the story here. Now, you eloquently started to go into a feminist theme. Did you have any other points on that message or did you want to talk about another theme? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I think one quick point about this question being a feminist moment, right? Yes. Jen Yu, on one hand, she, she romanticizes about the life of the wuxia, Wuxia being, you know, the, the, the martial arts figure, the swordsman or woman, that she romanticizes it as the ability to be free, to do whatever one, what one wants mm-hmm. without the cultural and social constraints. Because you've got to remember that she was being matchmade to be married to a person of high rank. That's right. And the purpose of the marriage was a political one. Right. And she wanted to break free from it. Hence, we have that specific flashback sequence where she has a passionate sort of connection with Dark Cloud Law, right? Yeah, the affair in the desert. She feels, on one hand, the cultural constraints of Chinese society, and at that time, it's the Manchu dynasty. You know, so the Manchu mainstream uh, is holding her back. 
the idea of family name and reputation is holding her back. Okay. And yet at the same time, after the death of Li Mubai, it was Shu Lian who tells Zhen Yu that you need to be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is a very modern thing to say. But what's interesting to me is that Shulin abides by the moral codes and patriarchal society mores imposed on her. Yes. She respects the privileges of males, and she ignores her desire for Li Mubai because it would be, I guess, dishonorable to wed him after being engaged to his partner. Absolutely. Yet she demonstrates this awesome repertoire of martial arts skills that is equal to Jen's yes. and superior to all males, apparently, in the story, except perhaps Li Mubai. Shulian realizes at the end that it was the very Confucian uh, sort of ideology that has uh, prevented her from embracing the passion that she has for Li Mubai. That is why even during the death scene of Li Mubai, she was telling Li Mubai, you know, do the almost Buddhist thing, right? To meditate and to free yourself from this material world. Right, yeah. His response to her was, all my life I've been doing that. I want my last breath to be about you and my love for you. And that was remarkable, I think, again, in terms of pushing back on this very traditional, very cultural morality, right? Where I cannot dishonor my, my son brother whose wife I love, mm -hmm. right? So he's telling her that I'm going to use my last breath to tell you I love you, as well as Shulian advising her younger sister in quotation marks, Jenny, go find your heart, is, is a, as I said, again, a very modern and a very feminist thing. Yeah, those are great points. I, I know that uh, in watching the bonus features, I recall James Seamus saying that the film is a constant dialogue about authority and teaching and mastery and masculinity versus femininity and how those two things end up not being in opposition. Any thoughts there? It's almost a very Taoist or, or even to a, to a certain degree Buddhist thing to argue that our traditional conceptions of masculinity and femininity, our conceptions are, are, are being sort of disrupted. And I think that it's incredible that even within the context of a very traditionalist genre, mm -hmm. Ang Lee and Seamus, they were able to take this very traditionalist format and reconstructed it to offer us this specific message. And, I, and as I said earlier, you know, it is a very Confucian thing to follow that hierarchy. The, I mean, film challenges it in the sense that, you know, even in Taoism and, and, and in Buddhism, their conceptions of gender are a lot, a lot more complex than we make them out to be. Okay. I see. To me, the message seems clear. Now, obviously, it's a subjective interpretation, and it doesn't necessarily have to agree with what you or someone else says. But, but I saw a major theme here being don't underestimate women or their agency. Right. When you think about the three primary female characters, they each try to push beyond the boundaries of what culture, tradition, and society expect of women. I think you're right. Um, and so in, in the context of the feminist reading that I have been proffering, okay. you know, uh, it, it, it's, on, on, it's on the mark. Mm -hmm. But also I think that it's a larger, one could even expand it beyond the feminist mm. reading, right? One could argue that one should always respect the oppressed okay. or the marginalized. Mm -hmm. We think, for example, of uh, how Ang Lee um, has specifically featured a flashback with Dark Cloud Law, where uh, Zhang Zhen's character... Mm -hmm. Was, it was basically an ethnic minority within uh, China. Okay. Yes, and so, I mean, coming from the Xinjiang re region, there are certain Turkic roots, the way he dresses. There's almost as if Li is positing that, you know, the minorities in China need to be respected. There is always a tendency for the majority to want to suppress, you know, the minority, and in, in, in even, even in the case of China. Interesting. Yeah, his attempt to sort of bring forward, right, to foreground, you know, the, the in, in a way, minority rights. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, the part of the film's political message. Wow, it's, it's so deeply layered. I mean, again, we could talk for hours yes. on this. Now, one thing that Ang Lee, I recall him saying in an interview as a theme of this movie, he said, you can't live by yourself alone. Nobody has total freedom. I assume he's talking about Jen, or how do you interpret that? I think that he's talking about all the characters. Okay. Remember that Lee comes coming from, I think, a Taiwanese background, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, from Taiwan. He made his first three films about a kind of patriarchy, right? A Chinese patriarchy. Okay. 
uh, with Father Knows Best, right? So he's always been very ambivalent about that patriarchy. Mm. All of his films often feature father figures. I mean, think about Hulk, for example. Sure. The main character has this sort of very fraught relationship. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about feminists as well as you know minority rights, we have to locate it within the larger context of Ang's sort of personal struggles with Chinese culture. Mm. So we think about how, on one hand, he says, I understand. So it's a balancing act. I understand the hold that father has on me, the Chinese culture has on me. And yet at the same time, I want to, I'm making films that articulate cultural positions or ideological positions mm. that go against this specific tradition. What do I do? How do I balance, on one hand, what one would call a, a kind of traditional cultural imperative, okay. right, of following father and, and, and submitting to his authority? And on the other hand, seeking a path for yourself and doing what is what you believe is good for you, right? And so there is this sort of a struggle, tug of war between a, a certain kind of individuality and that of uh, a larger cultural sociality at work. A lot of philosophical truths and themes going on here. One more that I noted from a Lee interview. He said that sometimes you have to go far away to find your long-lost innocence. Yeah. So I think he's suggesting the Crouching Tiger takes you back to childhood, a time when you could imagine yourself maybe flying and performing superhuman acts. I think what he's getting at here is how the film makes you want to believe that people can fly and engage in superhuman stunts on one hand. Sure. But maybe not literally, of course. This is a very sure. symbolic film. But more importantly, to suspend your disbelief, you have to be receptive to the joy of discovery and have a curious and open mind about the wondrous nature of the world. Yes, I do agree. And I think that um, that's a very significant point you're making. On the other hand, I want to also suggest that the films that he made, and particularly The Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that mm -hmm. in that specific search, right, for that freedom, also comes with it certain risk. It comes with it certain price that one has to pay. Okay. And, and the willingness to pay that price in order to retain and hold on to one's rights, so to speak. Mm. I mean, you think about how genuinely in the end, some people might, might, might argue that she kills herself at the end, right? And it was actually a suicide. And one could read that in a more uh, culturally conservative way by suggesting mm -hmm. that she was atoning for her sins, right? That she was being punished for what she has done. But you could also flip it over and make the argument that that specific scene is a scene where feminist reaction to the impossibility of having agency in the context of uh, the, the patriarchy that is Jianghu. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, she yearns for the total freedom that death would bring, yes, which right. she can accomplish in a way that harkens back to the story her lover Lo describes earlier in the movie. Right, if you right. recall, it's the tale of a boy who jumps off the mountain. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because it is a perplexing part of the film. You, you, you walk out and you, why does she kill herself? Maybe she doesn't. I guess it depends on your point of view. But, you know, there was a great article written by Tasha Robinson, a film scholar. She posited that Jen throws herself from the mountain in hopes that the purity of her sacrifice will please the gods who will grant her a wish. Right. So we hear Jen tell Lo to make a wish. And in response, Lo says he desires to return to the desert with Jen and be like they were before, right? Right, right. So uh, perhaps visualizing that image before plummeting to her demise, if that's what it is, maybe Jen achieves that wish, at least in her mind. Is that your reading on it? Or I guess there's multiple ways to interpret this ending, right? I think there are more ways to interpret that ending. But then I think you are pretty much, again, on the mark in, in your reading. I think about how the final image, right, the visual image of her leaping off the mountain is then cut to, I mean, there is an extreme long shot of her jumping off. And then, it, then there's a cut to a medium to medium close up of her kind of floating into the, the mist. I had a student once who said to me, if she knew Qing Gong, which is the, the skill, right, the light skill of flying, why isn't she just simply flying away? <laughs> That's a good point. And my, my argument is that this is where the mechanisms of cinema comes in. What we are getting here is something similar to, say, Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise. Ah, where they hit the accelerator on the car and they go right off the side of the mountain, right? Absolutely. Right. So, it, so with the 1966, you know, Thunderbird, they fly off the, the, the cliff into the Grand Canyon. But if you remember the film, 
The film does not end with them crashing. The film ends with them suspended in midair with a freeze frame. Right, it's a still frame. We don't see their dying. We see them kind of uh, forever emblazoned in amber or something, right? Absolutely. Right, and so therefore, therefore cinema in this particular case allows for that kind of immortalization of that mm-hmm. image. Yes. Um, and that image is ultimately then one that we could argue, which is the flip side of the, of the suicide argument, right? The flip side of, the, of, of this argument is that he, she then escapes. If I understand this correctly, right? if I remember this correctly, in the fourth novel, at the end of the novel, uh, Wang Tulu actually, it, as part of the narrative, you know, has Zheng Yu's character fake her death. She was jumping off, everybody thinks she's, she has died, but she runs off. After she runs off to Xinjiang, not with dark, dark cloud law, because she believes that she and law do not have a future uh, because of the way society thinks of her and of, of him. And so in the fifth novel, uh, Yu's character actually has a baby. And so that, that becomes the plot device to transition into you know, that final novel. But of course, Ang Lee and his fellow filmmakers, they don't have to stay true to the source material, right? They could be its own kind of thing. My argument about film to my students is that we have to be always be very careful as you are not to make the mistake that to see lit- the literary source as a, a superior source mm-hmm. but to allow the film to stand on its own and which That's is right. one of the reasons why I'm emphasizing particularly that final image because the image mm-hmm. is what would stick in our minds so even if literally Jen has fallen to her death, the point is perhaps the filmmakers are trying to make you think that's not how we want you to remember her by. She's made this very brave choice, and that's the image you should walk out of the theater with. Absolutely. That is right. Meaning yeah. to say that Lee wants us to remember Jen as having her freedom, right? A, mm. fe- a freedom that has been now visualized by perpetual flight. Right. Okay, well, thank you for clarifying that because I'm sure that a lot of people have been perplexed about that, so that at least demystifies it a bit. So we're honoring this film's 20th birthday, and birthdays typically involve giving presents, only I maintain that it's the fans who continue to get the gifts. So, Kenneth, what is Crouching Tiger's greatest gift to viewers? Continue to watch Asian films. I think that it's all the wonderful themes and concepts that we have been talking about thus far. They're all gifts to viewers, right? But I think most important of all, as, I, as I've said this before and I'm, and I'm saying it again, the film has helped launch the careers of a lot of these Hong Kong and Chinese actors. Mm-hmm. And it has helped introduce uh, Asian cinemas to Hollywood and to American audiences. A lot of my students who are taking, for example, you know, uh, an intro to film class, whenever I show this film and I survey my students, you know, a lot of this is the, the very first martial arts film they have ever seen. Wow. In a way, it is blazing a path for Asian filmmakers and Asian actors. It is always my hope that we are able to see more Asian faces on American television and, and cinema. Yeah, no, that's great. Can't argue with that. I would say from my point of view that greatest gifts are plentiful, but I'll, I'll narrow them down to a handful here. I think that you can point out, of course, the five major fight sequences that are staged in this movie, the ones that most people talk about. They remain fantastically rewarding upon subsequent viewings, of course. You know, they're each unique and memorable and all the more impressive because each duel refreshingly involves women kicking ass and outshining male combatants. (laughs) Or in the case of the final contest between Jen and Limu Bai, females proving to be powerful adversaries, at least. So that's refreshing. I mean, again, like you mentioned, Kill Bill came afterward in a lot of other movies. But finally, the tide has turned and we're seeing women with agency, with power, who are able to stand up or even uh, surpass males in action movies. And that's great. To me, Crouching Tiger is endlessly rewatchable, not just for the dazzling martial arts sequences and the combat choreography, but for the breathtaking cinematography, the nuanced performances. I think the acting in this movie is outstanding. And also the philosophical truths and the questions it conjures. So it is so deeply layered. We talked about the music, the dirge-like cello, and the fact that all the major characters either die or endure with unfulfilled wishes of love. This is a very tragic song 
somber story. And this kind of gift is like dark chocolate. It's a richer and less sweet confection that's better for your body, okay? So <laughs> yes. instead of being junk food, it's a movie that makes you think, even though it is kind of melancholy, right? Right. And as you so eloquently said earlier, it serves as yet another example of the diverse talents of a master filmmaker, Ang Lee, who has distinguished himself in so many different genres, including the romance genre with Sense and Sensibility, the social commentary period drama with The Ice Storm, the Western with Brokeback Mountain, the adventure thriller with Life of Pi, and even the comic book movie with The Hulk. I just can't wait to see what other amazing journeys he takes us on. So uh, all the more testament to his gifts and talents. Yes, So do you think Crouching Tiger will still be widely watched and considered relevant in another 20 years? What's going to happen in 2040? Is this movie going to be continued to be talked about or resonant? What you have pointed out is a testament to Ang Lee's skill Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker, right? And the artistry of his work. And it is because of the very nuanced and layered and, and complex films that he makes that it will bode well for him in terms of his films being studied and watched and rewatched again. I mean, I think about anyone from Chaplin to Orson Welles and even Akira Kurosawa, uh, although their films are dated in some way, yet they are so relevant to the processes of filmmaking, the history of filmmaking. They reflect the culture of the times. Essential texts that I'm sure you and others continue to teach, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would love, for example, to teach an entire course on Ang Lee because, you know, he makes such damn good films, yes. right? He's such a damn good director. And he has never failed to take Wrist. Agreed. Even the films that are his more quote-unquote mediocre films, he's willing to explore new technology. Even mm-hmm. with Life of Pi, for example, yes. the, 3- the 3D technology. With Billy Lean's Long Walk, which is again a stunning film. I know that some critics hate it, but I love the fact that he is never complacent. That he's always trying to adopt new technology, not for just new technology's sake, but for how cinematic technology in the 21st century can continue to influence, to inflect, to shift the way we think about our culture. Yeah, no question. It's not just about form and content and separating them, but rather that they interpenetrate one another and influence each other. But just in quick summary, you agree this movie is still going to be watched and talked about in 20 years? Absolutely. I've seen this film a number of times. I've written about it, you know, in articles in my book. And yet, a couple of days ago, before this interview, I saw it, I watched it again. And I saw things I did not see the first time. Isn't that amazing? You always pick new things out in such a densely layered film like this. Yes. And again, it's a testament to such a, what a great filmmaker he makes. And I love your reference to dark chocolate. It is an acquired taste. Absolutely. I tell this to my students. I tell it to people at... I I give talks to, you know, that one has to be patient. Sometimes, you know, it takes a little time to appreciate the the cultural specificity and the nuances of of a film like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm -hmm. But the more you watch it, the more it grows on you and the better it gets through time. Agreed. Well said. So, Kenneth, are you working on anything currently that listeners should check out? For example, a book, website, project, anything of note? In the past 20 years, I've been writing about transnational Chinese cinema. I've also published a book in about 2017, I think, on Hong Kong director Yon Fan and his queer film. What's the name of the book so we can look it up? The book is entitled Yon Fan's Bugis Street, B-U-G-I-S Street. Okay. Currently, I'm turning my attention to the fantastic in global cinema. I've just finished co-editing a volume uh, on the fantastic in contemporary Chinese cinema, Mm. and it's currently under editorial review. Terrific. I'm also beginning a new book project. It's a book dealing with the post-human and the fantastic in the cinema of the Anthropocene, right? So the Anthropocene ah. is, the, is the geological age where, man, where humanity basically destroys itself through environmental catastrophes. A topic worth exploring, no question. Yes. All right. Well, Kenneth, we'll keep an eye out for that and your past works. And I want to thank you again personally so much for taking a deep dive off Wuhan Mountain and Crouching Tiger, (laughs) Hidden Dragon. It was so much fun. And I learned a lot just talking to you. You opened my eyes to some new possibilities, themes and interpretations. And I hope we did the same for some listeners here. I want to express my gratitude again. Thank you. Thank you so much, too. Thanks again to Kenneth for providing such captivating insights and recollections of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Now it's time for another installment of Standing Ovations. 
This is where I give a shout-out to a movie, book, website, TV program, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers. Fittingly, my recommendation this month is for a box set to be released in July by Criterion. It's called Bruce Lee, His Greatest Hits. Now, this surprise recent announcement by Criterion will feature several of Lee's most beloved films across seven Blu-ray discs. The list includes The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Game of Death, The Way of the Dragon, Enter the Dragon, and Game of Death 2, along with loads of bonus content and audio commentaries. Most of these films, thankfully, get 4K digital restorations, and I'm sure they'll look and sound amazing. So whether you're a Bruce Lee diehard or just a casual fan of martial arts films, hey, this incredible collection sounds like it will be made to satisfy. So mark your calendars. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash DonateCineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com, and that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. Well, that should do it for our May film foray. Eager to learn what we have planned for June? We've booked a reservation at the Overlook Hotel, where Jack Torrance and family await as we honor the 40th anniversary of one of the most terrifying tales ever committed to celluloid, The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, stay safe and healthy throughout this pandemic, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, they are getting better. Thanks again for giving us a listen.